Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 87. Who's in charge? Well, last episode, we buried the Red Tsar, Comrade Joseph Stalin, a man terribly feared and yet greatly loved by his people and friends. His reign saw a terror that claimed the lives of millions of people. What Russia needed now was a period to recover from the fear that had been injected into their psyche. But who was going to take up this reform banner? Well, we have about seven candidates to take over for the fallen boss. We have Beria, Malenkov, Khrushchev, Bulganin, Kaganovich, Voroshilov, and Molotov. The first four, though, were the leading candidates. Although, when the new presidium was announced, Khrushchev was listed fifth. But there was one thing for sure. Beria and Malenkov grabbed at power first. Khrushchev warned Bulganin that Beria was a real danger to them when he said that Beria would take the top police position, quote, for the purpose of destroying us, and he will do it too, if we let him. Therefore, no matter what happens, we can't let him do it, absolutely, no matter what. The evening of March 5th, before Stalin died, a few hours later, the leaders of the Communist Party met. They removed Stalin as leader, obviously, and Beria nominated Malenkov to head the government, and Malenkov nominated Beria as the head of the police. All now knew that Khrushchev was right in his assessment. The new party leaders, though, had a really big problem to address early on, and that was the millions of people who were imprisoned in the gulags because of both Stalin's orders and, of course, even more seriously, their complicity in the deportations. The whole nation needed to thaw out of their collective fear that Stalin had inflicted on everyone. As Khrushchev put it in his memoirs, We were scared, really scared. We were afraid the thaw might unleash a flood, which we wouldn't be able to control, and which would drown us. On top of it, while Stalin had made impressive strides with the industrialization of the Soviet Union, food production was way behind, falling to levels that weren't seen since before World War I. Added to that, the United States was surrounding the USSR with air bases in Norway, Germany, Italy, South Korea, and Japan. It seemed to many in the Western world that the USSR was rudderless. Khrushchev was to write that the West, quote, knew we were in a complicated and difficult situation after Stalin's death, and that the leadership Stalin left behind was composed of people who had too many differences among them. On March 9th, Stalin's funeral took place. As a sort of, uh, what you might call a gift, Beria returned Molotov's wife to him, Polina Zemchujina back from the labor camp Stalin had sent her to. Beria then followed with numerous liberal reforms, such as putting in motion the release of over 1.1 million non-political prisoners in the labor camps, putting an end to the doctor's plot, and ordered an end to, quote, 
cruel beatings of those arrested, round-the-clock handcuffing with arms behind their backs, which sometimes lasted several months, long periods of sleep deprivation, leaving prisoners in isolation cells, etc. So, why would a man who tortured, raped, and murdered so many become so much of a liberal reformer? Well, as William Taubman writes in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Khrushchev, The Man and His Era, which you all really need to read, phenomenally written book, what he said was, quote, Beria was not a closet liberal. He played the role of reformer just because he was drenched in blood. Beria was trying to consolidate his power with Malenkov, as well as begin the process of condemnation of his former boss, Stalin. When the filmmaker Mikhail Chiorelli showed him a, navi, um, excuse me, a movie praising Stalin, Beria was quoted as saying the following, Forget about that son of a bitch. Stalin was a scoundrel, a savage, a tyrant. He held us all in fear, the bloodsucker, and the people too. That's where all the power came from. Fortunately, we're now rid of him. Let the snake rot in hell. Strangely, one reform Beria proposed was allowing East Germany to leave the Soviet bloc and reunite with the West. And this has only been found recently after Perestroika, that we know that this was even being discussed. Molotov, who is now foreign minister again, questioned the new leader about this policy change, to which Beria responded, Because all we need is a peaceful Germany, whether it is socialist or not, isn't important to us. Well, this position raised quite a few eyebrows and was part of the impetus used by his enemies to take him down. At this time, there were three men now thought of as being the controlling Troika in the first few post-Stalin days, and that was Beria, Malenkov, and the newly added Khrushchev. Now, there are some sources that I've read. They mention Molotov, but I don't buy that, as Stone Arse was not a real significant player and didn't have a really a mind much of his own. He was always led by the nose by Stalin, and even though the others were under control of Joseph Stalin, I honestly don't think that Molotov was the power broker that many that I've read on the Internet, uh, especially, uh, you know, that bastion of mistakes, uh, Wikipedia. Khrushchev was included by the original pair for two reasons. One was because Beria didn't view Nikita as being a threat, and secondly, as Pyotr Demichev, a former Khrushchev aide, said, Nikita Sergeyevich, of course, tried to get along with him, although he hated and feared him. Beria sensed that Khrushchev couldn't be ignored, so he treated him carefully. Khrushchev truly feared and despised Beria, as did many members of the Presidium, and certainly the military hated him, as they were appalled that he would even think of giving East Germany away after the millions of brave Red Army soldiers who died in the Great Patriotic War. 
How could he even think of dishonoring those men and the citizens of the Soviet Union who paid the ultimate price against the hated Germans? It was, of course, only eight years after the end of the war, and the horrors still burned brightly in the Russian psyche. It was now Khrushchev's job to lay a trap for Beria, one that would have to be planned very carefully, as Beria had a large security force at his beck and call, and if he caught wind of it, he most certainly would arrest and execute all involved. So, must be asking, how did Nikita Sergeyevich pull off the dastardly deed, with Beria having eyes and ears everywhere, as he was the head of the secret police? Khrushchev brilliantly planned a double cross. Nikita first approached Malenkov to inform him that Beria was planning to get rid of both of them, and that Malenkov, as chairman of the Presidium, needed to allow dissenting voices to be heard, as a way of showing that Beria was mortal and vulnerable. He told Malenkov, quote, The trouble is, you never give anyone a chance to speak at a Presidium sessions. As soon as Beria introduces a motion, you always jump in immediately to support him. Give the rest of us a chance to express ourselves for once, and you'll see what happens. Control yourself. Don't be so jumpy. You and I put the agenda together, so let's include for discussion some matters on which we believe Beria is mistaken. Then we'll oppose him. At the next Presidium meeting, Molotov questioned the German decision, and Khrushchev supported his views. This made Beria question Khrushchev, but he swerved privately and blamed Malenkov for allowing dissension at the session. He proposed that the two of them take Malenkov out. Nikita agreed, and the trap was now set. It is obvious that after this, that Beria's men began to hear rumors of a coup as Khrushchev visited Voroshilov, Bulganin, Kaganovich, Molotov, and finally, and very carefully, Mikoyan. But Beria was convinced that it was Malenkov that was the target, and not him. He was also confident, as he had two MVD divisions in Moscow, and the Kremlin guards were his men as well. He was supremely confident, and Khrushchev led him to believe that the entire operation was aimed at Malenkov. The deception was brilliant. Khrushchev needed armed allies, so he called the chief of the Moscow Air Defense Forces, Kirill Moskalenko, who was a close friend from their days together in the Ukraine during World War II. He told him to bring cigars to a meeting at the Kremlin to discuss air defense readiness. Khrushchev asked him, Do you understand me? I understood, Moskalenko recalled. Cigars meant weapons. This was a dangerous ploy, as only security guards were allowed to carry guns in the Kremlin. Moskalenko recruited six men to come with him, including the highly respected war hero, Marshal Georgi Zhukov. 
and future ruler of the Soviet Union, someone we mentioned for the first time now, Leonid Brezhnev. They got into the Kremlin and were ushered into a room next to where the meeting of the Presidium of the Council of Ministers was to be held. They were then told by Khrushchev, Molotov, and Bulganin what they were there to do. Arrest Beria. It was June 26, 1953, and according to Taubman, this is how things went down. The meeting began about noon and lasted about two hours. Malenkov apparently made the case against Beria, seconded by others. Khrushchev, who spoke especially sharply, according to Mikoyan, charged that Beria had once worked for the British intelligence and that since Stalin's death he had been trying to undermine socialism and legalize arbitrary rule. Beria was no communist, said Khrushchev. He's a careerist who has wormed his way into the party for self-seeking reasons. His arrogance is intolerable. No honest communist would ever behave the way he does. At first, Beria didn't realize the seriousness of the situation. What's with you, he demanded. Are you looking for a flea in my pants? Later, he admitted to mistakes, but asked not to be expelled from the party. As Malenkov began summing up, he pressed a button, summoning the military men in the next room and declared, As chairman of the Council of Ministers of the USSR, I request that you take Beria into custody pending an investigation of the charges made against him. When Zhukov shouted, Hands up! Beria reached for his briefcase on a nearby windowsill. Fearing the case contained a gun, Khrushchev seized Beria's arm. Beria was shocked as he fully expected Malenkov to be arrested, not him. The plotters had successfully eliminated the one man they all feared and loathed. Now it was time to put him on trial and execute the butcher. A series of fabricated charges, reminiscent of the Stalinist-era trials, were drummed up, and on December 18th, the six-day trial of Beria and six of his associates began. The charges were the typical ones of treason, terrorism, and counter-revolution. A list of all the rape victims of Beria was also introduced as evidence. On day six, the verdict, which was preordained, was read condemning to death all the men immediately. Here again is how Taubman describes it. Following Presidium directives that dictated the verdict in advance, the Special Judicial Panel declared Beria and his men guilty on all counts and sentenced them to be shot in the same bunker in which the trial was held. After the sentence was pronounced, guards removed Beria's prison shirt, leaving him in a white undershirt, tied his hands behind his back, and attached the rope to a hook hammered into a wooden board designed to shield witnesses from ricocheting bullets. When Beria tried to speak, Rudenko ordered him gagged with a towel. Beria wasn't dispatched by an ordinary executioner, 
but by a three-star general, A. Batitsky. At the very last minute, witnesses saw Beria's eyes protruding wildly just above the bandage across his face. Batitsky fired directly into Beria's forehead. Immediately afterward, the corpse was incinerated at the Donskoy crematorium. At the next plenum meeting of the Central Committee, Malenkov, Mikoyan, Kaganovich, and Molotov all cautiously and somewhat timidly denounced Beria as an evil henchman who was responsible for many of the atrocities of the Stalin era. Khrushchev was the star, though. Simonov writes, You could tell from his account that it was Khrushchev himself who had played the main role, that he had initiated the action, that he had turned out to be more penetrating, more talented, more energetic, and more decisive than the others. Now, next time, we're going to have a kind of a special podcast, as I'll be reading a part of Khrushchev's secret speech denouncing Joseph Stalin, which is where he made his mark as the de facto ruler of the Soviet Union. And the reason I'm doing this is I want to start ending the discussions of Joseph Stalin and moving on from there. We have to understand that there was a purge of the psyche of Russia. And we are going to skip a few years, and then the podcast after that will return to the early years of Khrushchev and how he rose to power. Now, today, we're going to have a person of focus, and that is Lazar Kaganovich. Born in 1893 in the village of Kabani, near Kiev, he was the son of Jewish parents and was to become one of the most trusted and brutal aides of Joseph Stalin. His career in the Bolshevik party started in 1911, when he followed his brother, Mikhail, who was already a member. He slowly moved up the ranks, starting as a vice-chairman of the Yuzovka Soviet. When the October Revolution happened, he was the leader of the revolt in Homel, the second largest city in Belarus. Then, in 1918, he moved up to become the commissar of the Red Army Propaganda Department. By the time Stalin began his grab for power in 1922, as the general secretary of the Communist Party on orders from Lenin, Kaganovich was sent to the Org Bureau of the Secretariat, which was responsible for putting together the assignments that was to populate the Communist Party with Stalin's supporters. He was noted as one of the first men to follow all of Stalin's orders without question, which is one of the reasons he survived the purges, despite Stalin's dislike of Jews. It is suggested that he fixed the election at the 17th Congress of the Communist Party, making Stalin the selection instead of Sergei Kirov. Now, when they did these votes, it was how many votes you had against you, not how many votes that were for you that decided the election. Now, according to Radzinski, 290 votes against Stalin vanished, and he ended up with only two against him, as opposed to Kirov's three votes against. Working with Molotov, 
Kurganovich was involved in the great collectivization policy, trying to confiscate all grain in the Soviet Union, which failed miserably, with the result being the Great Famine of 1932 and 1933. He was then involved with the Great Purges, first being the Minister of Railroads. And if you remember from my podcast, during the Great Purges, they had purged so many people from the railroads that they you know, called out and said, stop doing this. We just don't have anybody working there anymore. We won't be able to run any trains. And he also was the Minister of Heavy Industry and the Oil Industry. His nickname at the time was Iron Lazar for the utter ruthless nature of his following Stalin's orders. He was an extremely feared man throughout his time with Joseph Stalin. He was so brutal that when the boss intimated that his brother Mikhail was, quote, associating with the right wing, Lazar calmly took the information without defending his brother and called him to tell him what was being said. Mikhail Kaganovich promptly committed suicide that same day. During his later years with Stalin, he was to guide his protege, Nikita Khrushchev, through his career, oftentimes bailing him out when things were not going well. After Stalin died, he remained on the Presidium, but his influence was nothing like it was before. In 1957, he tried to overthrow his former protege and leagued together with Molotov, Shepilov, and Malenkov, but failed, which caused him to be kicked off the Presidium. Kaganovich lived to the ripe old age of 97, dying in 1991, just before the collapse of the USSR. He outlived all the old Stalinists. There's a book about his life entitled, quote, The Wolf of the Kremlin by Stuart Kahan. There were a number of claims made in the book that are highly controversial and disputed, including that Stalin had married his sister, Rose. The author also claimed to have interviewed Kaganovich before his death, and that Lazar claimed to have been involved in the plot to poison Stalin, and that he was the person who was involved in the planning of the anti-Jewish pogroms and the doctor's plot. He is buried in the Novodevichy Cemetery in Moscow. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's and a shorter podcast, uh, longer than the average ones of the past, but shorter than the ones we've had recently. I kind of wish it would be a little longer, but my real life is starting to get in the way of writing up longer podcasts. I'm going to be accepting a new position at a high-end job soon, and will take up a little bit more of my time, but don't worry. I'm going to keep the podcast going, and uh, we will go beyond Putin, and we're going to start covering different parts of Russian history. Uh, Please take time to give me a review on iTunes, as it will help and has helped me move up in the rankings. You know, I don't even mind the criticisms that I've read. You know, it's going to help me improve the podcast. You can't keep a thin skin in this business where you're giving away free podcasts to people because it's a subject I love. And if my pronunciations and I, you know, are a little off, I stumble a bit, you know, that's it. You know, I'm two generations removed from being Russian, so... You know, my pronunciations are a little off, and and I accept the criticism on that. Also, please join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, where we've had some real lively and informative discussions. And thanks especially this week to listener James Kay, 
who informed me that last episode I mispronounced the word dacha, and I said it as dasha. It is dacha. Well, thanks for keeping me on my toes there, James. Now, as always, das vidanya is pasiba bolshoya.